is that uh, I don't want to be in a relationship, and in this case, a specific romantic relationship, where my presence to someone or someone's presence to me feels like it is a necessity. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, where I'm trying to figure things out. So this week, Dan and I had a conversation about loneliness, about community, and about how to find community when you feel lonely. And it, it links well with the conversation we had about seminary and uh, disenchantment or um, cynicism, because a lot of the ways in which we find ourselves feeling lonely is having not a lot of community or conversation partners in ways that we would like. I think him more than me. I'm blessed to have uh, a certain church community that is for those kinds of things, some close friends here in Springfield that also are for those kinds of things. So, um, and it came from a conversation we had off air that was the inspiration to read some of these sections to him. Uh, In this conversation, I read from a book by Henry Nouwen, called Reaching Out the Three Spiritual Movements, and I focus on the first spiritual movement, which is from loneliness to solitude, and I just read from his first chapter called A Suffocating Loneliness. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, Henry Nouwen is a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he was 64 when he died. He died in 96, so he died the year I was born. <clears throat> but he is a Dutch Catholic priest, a professor, a writer, and a theologian. He was very pastoral, and you will see that in the writing as, as I read from it. But um, he has authored uh, lots of books, lots and lots of books. Um, heavy influence of his would be somebody like um, Thomas Merton, No Man is an Island. That comes up in this conversation. So... If, uh, if you aren't familiar with Nowen and this gets you interested in him, then I would highly suggest reading this book. It's very short. It's maybe 100 pages. Um, and most of his books are, are, are pretty easy to read, although he does have nice language. And um, he's just very, very insightful. Someone, someone you can really lean on, especially if you're more of an existentialist. Um, and he's no slouch. Now and taught at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard. So uh, he's no hippie, necessarily. Oh, another thing about Now and the end of his life, he went and worked with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Ontario. And so. You see a man who continues again and again to to give his life away, to pour it out for others. And so I, I just wanted to give this introduction to introduce the topic, but also to introduce the man of which we read from, someone I have 
high respect for someone that I find um, that I find intellectually stimulating and emotionally moving. So without further ado. So today, it's a surprise for Daniel, at least. Um, yeah. Something that we were going to do like a month ago, but we didn't do, I think, for a couple reasons. I think we had like a week off because like one of us was busy or both of us were busy or one of us was sick. And then I was like, okay, let's just forego it for a minute because we had some other stuff we wanted to talk about. And then we started a whole literature series and, and things like that. So before we continue with those things and transition a little bit, we decided we'd just do this and I can surprise him with what I wanted to read. Um, I'll say this, the, me wanting to read this to Daniel was sparked by things that were discussed in a conversation we had offline. Um, so I'm curious how the reaction to this goes. Um, how I envision this happening is I'm going to read some portions from a chapter of a book, and then Daniel, you can stop me whenever you feel it appropriate and react to what's been said, and then we can discuss it. Um, I haven't read this in a while. Um, it is one of those things that every time I read it or portions of it, it makes me cry. So that might happen today. Um, there's something about words and words said well that just causes uh, emotion I'm in me, uh, yeah. which is why I like subtly, maybe not so subtly, was like crying as we were watching the uh, <laughs> the uh, the sermon by um, uh, whatever his name is, Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I did gets too, me so gets me every time. The like oh, all the Domitian stuff. But anyway. Uh, what I'm going to read from today is a book by Henry Nouwen, and it is called Reaching Out, The Three Spiritual Movements. He has some fascinating things to say that uh, very much are relevant to our current time. And just to give you the format of the book, the three spiritual movements that he talks about in this book are the move, the movement from loneliness to solitude, from hostility to hospitality, and from illusion to prayer. I'm going to be reading from chapter from the first movement, and I'm going to be reading chapter one. So from loneliness to solitude, and chapter one is entitled A Suffocating Loneliness. Um, I first read this book when I broke with my ex-girlfriend. My dad gave it to me, and he was like, maybe you should just read even the first section of this book. And it was revelatory for me to read because there were certain, there was just, again, the way he said certain things rang so true for my experience, especially within that relationship that uh, I, I still can't shake them. Um, so it's, it was truly an enlightening experience. Um, I don't, that being said, I don't know exactly how much I'm going to read. Um, yeah, I'll read a few paragraphs here and then I can stop and we can talk. So chapter one, a suffocating loneliness. Between competition and togetherness. 
It is far from easy to enter into the painful experience of loneliness. You like to stay away from it. Still, it is an experience that enters into everyone's life at some point. You might have felt it as a little child when your classmates laughed at you because you were cross-eyed. Or as a teenager, when you were the last one chosen on the baseball team. You might have felt it when you were homesick and at boarding school or angry about nonsense rules, which you could not change. You might have felt it as an adult in a university where everyone talked about grades, but where a good friend was hard to find, or in an action group when no one paid any attention to your suggestions. You might have felt it as a teacher when your students did not respond to your carefully prepared lectures, as a, or as a preacher when people were dozing during your well-intentioned sermons. And you still might feel it day after day during staff meetings, conferences, counseling sessions, during long office hours, or monotonous manual labor, or just when you're off by yourself staring away from a book that cannot keep your attention. Practically every human being can recall similar or much more dramatic situations in which he or she has experienced the strange inner gnawing, that mental hunger, that unsettling unrest that makes us say, I feel lonely. The contemporary society in which we find ourselves makes us acutely aware of our loneliness. We become increasingly aware that we are living in a world where even the most intimate relationships have become part of competition and rivalry. Pornography seems to be one of the logical results. It is intimacy for sale. And the many porno shops, hundreds of lonely young and old men full of fear that anyone will recognize them, gaze silently at the pictures of new girls drawing their minds into intimate close rooms where some stranger will melt away their loneliness. The streets, meanwhile, shout about the cruel struggle for survival, and even the porno corners cannot silence that noise. Certainly not when the shop owner keeps reminding the customers that they should buy instead of just looking. Loneliness is one of the most universal sources of human suffering today. Psychiatrists and clinical psychologists speak about it as a more, most frequent expression, as the most frequently expressed complaint, and the root not only of an increased number of suicides, but also of alcoholism, drug use, different psychosomatic symptoms such as headaches, stomach, and lower back pains, and a large number of traffic accidents. Children, adolescents, adults, and old people are in growing degree, are in growing degree exposed to the contagious disease of loneliness in a world in which a competitive individualism tries to reconcile itself with a culture that speaks about togetherness, unity and community as the ideals to strive for. Why is it that many parties and friendly get-togethers leave us so empty and sad? Maybe even the deep-seated and often unconscious competition between people present, prevents us from revealing themselves to each other and from establishing relationships that last longer than the party itself. Where we are always welcome, our absence won't matter that much either. And when everyone can come, nobody will be particularly missed. I'll read that again. Where we are always welcome, our absence won't matter that much either. And when everyone can come, nobody will be particularly missed. Okay, pause. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you've just said a lot. 
Um, a lot of really good stuff. And I'm not sure, I mean, I'm thinking back to a month, month and a half ago when we had whatever conversation offline prompted this, um, this discussion and your idea to have it. It was the conversation about friends. I figured. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I figured it was that one, but I've actually in the back of my head thought to several other conversations that were completely different that are also relevant. Okay. To, to this. Um, but yeah, you, ju- you just said a lot. So let me... And if you want me to re- reread any section and hit on something specific, let me know. Um, I, think, I think that I can manage, but I just... So the, the last line you read, if something about if everyone's invited, yeah, read that one more time. Why is it that many parties and friendly get-togethers leave us so so empty and sad? Maybe even there, the deep-seated and often unconscious competition between people prevents them from revealing themselves to each other and from establishing relationships that last longer than the party itself. Or where, where we are always welcome, our absence won't matter that much either. And when everyone can come, no one would particularly missed. Okay. So when everyone can come, no one will be particularly missed. Um, one of the most brilliant cartoon movies, I think, that has ever been made is The Incredibles. Yes. I actually just rewatched this uh, last week. And, and it's brilliant. Yeah. I haven't seen the second one. Um, and the I've second one's to. not as good. Yeah, and I've heard that, which is unfortunate. But the first one is utterly brilliant for a wide variety of reasons. But my favorite is the way the villain, like the ideology of the villain. He's trying to set up a system where he can make everyone super and I mean, the best line in the movie is if and when everyone is super, super, no one is. Which is juxtaposed to the line that's said by Dash in the first act when they're talking about him competing. He's telling his mom because mm-hmm. he gets in trouble with the principal, yeah. right? And he's talking to Elastigirl and, and um, she goes, well, everyone's special, Dash. She goes, and, and then Dash says, yeah, which is the same as saying no one is. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. The theme of the movie in like yeah. a couple lines. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because we have this, to make it theological for a second, we have this idea of the Imago Dei, right? The image of God. And that does mean that everyone's special and everyone's loved by God. But what that does not mean is that everyone's the same, right? And I think we have a a cultural movement right now that tries to make everyone the same. And And sometimes it magnifies difference in an effort 
to show diversity, but what it, what it ultimately is trying to do is, is make, make those differences and disagreements we have disappear so that we're all equal in some way. Equality is a good thing, but I'm not sure that worshiping it like we do is. I'll leave that there. Back, back to loneliness. <sighs> um, seminary is a lonely experience in many ways. Divinity school. You grow up in the church. And you're so passionate about your beliefs that you want to go deeper. And you want to go deeper in some professional sense. And there's nothing wrong with people who want to go deeper, not in a professional sense. In fact, I might recommend that actually. Yeah. Um, not that I regret any decision I've made. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, not that I regret any decision that I've made. I think this is what God has made me for. Um, but seminary is a, by default, lonely experience. And it's because at one point in time, your level of knowledge was of, of the scripture, of Christian tradition, of all of these things was about on par with all of the other fellow Christians around you, right? You might have a little bit more knowledge, right? If you are a theological hobbyist, but it's not what you've been doing day in and day out for, by the end of at least my MDiv process, it'll be three years. And so <clears throat> there is automatically a, a disconnect between the level of understanding you have as a seminary student and the level of understanding you have as your average Christian congregant. Right? It's just based on the amount of hours you've put into study. It's not like anything good or bad or makes you better. Um, and when you go through seminary, you have sometimes more questions than answers. And people are scared of questions. And so I think that's one thing that can be very isolating, right? Is when the questions you have don't match up with the answers that everyone around you within generalized Christian culture, the Christian culture that you love, that I love, that I've grown up in has uh, has presented. <clears throat> and 
So, um, so yeah, that can be pretty, a pretty lonely experience. It can be hard to find companionship with, with just your average churchgoer. And that, again, is not to say that the seminary student is better than, but they're in a different place. They need some different things, right? Because I don't know about you, but I've, I've answered the question of what is good Christian modesty, right? I've answered the question of <clears throat> to drink alcohol or not to drink alcohol. I've answered the question, like I've answered all of these hot button evangelical Christian questions that are so dominant in our Christian pop culture. And I've moved on to something different. And so the questions don't line up, right? I feel like I'm trying to go somewhere. I, I've found in exactly that same realm. Um, being part of a community, and I spoke about my community on this podcast before, and I love it. But even being a part of Bible studies with, with uh, these people, can get it's it's this feeling like you're describing where the questions i have about what's happening don't match with their questions and because i want to help you know answer or be a part of their growth not that i'm not growing as well but uh then those are the things that are going to take precedence because I put it this way. I feel like then, then the questions I would ask would get met with something like, yeah, but why does that matter? Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, part of also what I'm trying to figure out here. But in that sense, it's, an isolating feeling. Well, <clears throat> the, the question that you just raised, why does that matter? That's inherently a demeaning question, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's your, your concern or your question of the text isn't relevant to me. And I don't care is essentially what that's communicating, whether or not that's how the person feels, right? That's how the, that response gets received, or at least by me, right? When I've been, when, when that's been phrased to me, especially in this attitude of you seminary student, you think you're, you know, hot stuff coming in here. Well, why does that matter? Why does the cultural context matter? Why does this question that you have matter? I mean, it's, kind of hurtful, honestly, um, <clears throat> because it's a genuine, I have genuine questions and it, and it matters to me. 
I don't, I mean, depending on the question, the answer would be different, but it, but it matters, right? Why does it matter? Well, okay. In, insert answer here, whatever, but it matters to me. I care about it. And you not recognizing that is not recognizing a serious thing in my faith, right? Just like me. I mean, I can do the exact same thing to you in reverse and I, I try not to, right? But I think that it's, yeah. And <clears throat> did, did you have anything else to, to no, say? That was, that was, that was the point I was trying to make. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. It, no, it just, no, yeah, you, you kick-started. So bouncing off of that, um, I had several people um, oh, so real quick before I do that, last night, um, had Bible study with some friends, um, in town and, uh, my wife and I go to two Bible studies, one with some friends and then one with a church group. Um, there, I mean, they're also our friends too, but, um, one with not our church group and then one with our church group. And, um, one of the guys in the Bible study, we were talking about cultural context of like being, um, the geographic situation of Israelites wandering in the desert um, and like certain important biblical images they get used in that. Um, for anyone who's curious, this would be coming from uh, the Bema series images in the desert, which is potentially one of the best series in the whole podcast I would highly recommend um, anyway. And my friend, this, this guy at the, at the group, he's been, he for a while was struggling with this idea of cultural context and relevance and, and how it changes the meaning of the text and kind of worrying that that might be somehow dangerous. Um, and last night, he just expressed how amazing it was that this image in the desert that he had never understood before gave so much life and breath to the passages that it was relevant to. And I think we were talking about um, like certain plants that you find in the desert and how those plants are used in the prophets and in the Psalms and things like that. And how just understanding the type of plant that the prophet or the writer is talking about really enriches the way that you read that passage. And that would be my question, my answer to why are you asking that question? Why is it relevant? Because I, I want a, an enriched and deep understanding of the Bible. And I don't understand why that would be a bad thing to want a deep and enriched understanding of the Bible. And I don't understand why you're giving me pushback, you know, to, to the person that's asking that question. Because I saw my friend like have a, just a mind blown kind of experience where he's like, wow, this means so much and it's so applicable to my life. And I'd missed it all this time. And I feel like once you've seen that, it's kind of hard to go back. Yeah. You know, and one thing that this does, right, is it makes it really difficult for me to sit through an average Sunday morning sermon. 
because I feel like most sermons, and we were talking about this in my preaching class this past week, right? a so good like, sermon, sorry. So like church itself, which is why I feel blessed to go where I go to church because of my pastor and how he sermons. Even the experience of church where it should be edifying and communal and build build you up as a believer and give you all of that. And as we talked about in our cynic episode, with this like experience, and, and you can elaborate on this, church actually becomes a very lonely place. Yeah. Because, and partially it's our fault because mm-hmm. we have become the, oh, well, actually, oh, well, actually, you see what's going on there is uh, yeah. how you use this passage in the New Testament. The Old Testament is like da, 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 da. If you actually knew the cultural context of like Jesus and the woman at the well, you'd know that people usually find their brides at wells in the Old Testament. There we go. Yeah. That's our old, that's our Old Testament theme episode right there. The okay. Way. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. Keep going. Uh, keep going though. Yeah. So we become that, oh, what you really see going on here is the, and then we become the critic who, like I've said with my buddy that went to film school, well, you can't ever sit there and enjoy it because you're just like, oh, well, how we use this shot. And it's just like, oh, medium shot, medium shot, reverse shot. Oh, close up. Oh, location shot with text. And it's like, oh, like sermon move here, introduction with personal story, and then passage read, and then ex- like exposit three verses and give me my, you know, three points of application. Oh, great. Very formulaic of you to do that, Pastor. Appreciate it very much, you know? Yeah. Well, and you just, you just, at least that's how I react a lot of times. Yeah. So, so this, this, and I'd say part of that has to do with the format, by the way, but there goes mm-hmm. my cynic. Point is that many times, even being in church, the thing that throughout the week should bind you to the other believers and make you feel at home and encourage you, then is a place of like cynicism and loneliness if you let it be, if you let it be cynical, but I think regardless, you'll feel as we've been describing detached from those around you, mainly because you're in a different headspace, quite literally than most of them. So then the questions you're going to have about the sermon or the things that you would say afterwards, or the, you know, the thing that you want to discuss over lunch is just not even part of whatever it is so and yeah i mean i've totally had that experience i mean almost every sunday actually um and i'm also blessed to go to a church where i feel like the pastors when they preach they um they do a better job than most of preaching to a wider spectrum of christians and that's one thing that came up in my uh, preaching class this past week is a good sermon preaches to those who want to go deep and those who are on the surface at the same time. It has a bit of both. Um, 
And most sermons, I don't think, have a bit of both. Um, I'm lucky to go to a church that I think usually does. It doesn't have much of the depth, but it has enough that I can grab a little something and I can chew on that little bit for a while. Um, and, and it's, it's life-giving, right? But so before starting my divinity school experience, I had multiple people come up to me and this will get us dangerously close to a topic I know is going to come up in a future episode, uh, but that's all right. Um, I had um, several people at my church, several people in my life personally came up to me and were like, you know, Daniel, they didn't say it exactly this way, but this is really what they were saying um, to greater degrees of subtlety, greater and lesser degrees of subtlety. But seminary is cemetery for your faith. And you're going to go and they're going to try to change you. Um, and especially because I'm going to Wake Forest. So especially at a liberal school. And um, I think seminary is cemetery in a very different way than what they intended and what they meant by those statements. Because I found that technically that might be true, but what they were envisioning was the intellectuality of it is going to kill my faith. And it's going to cause me to doubt and it's going to ruin all the good foundation that had been sown in my life, right? We'll go to the parable of the sower. Um, the, the devil will come and the, the thorns will choke it out or the, the birds will come or it'll, the seed will have just been on the rocky soil, right? Something like that would happen and my faith would die. Um, <clears throat> and you know, especially, especially because it's a liberal university. It's not um, Southeastern Bible College in Florida, and it's not Evangel or AGTS, right? Um, which is where you're going. Yes. Um, and so, for all those who aren't aware, yeah, um, it's not even Fuller. Okay, yeah, you're not even middle of the road, Dan. Yeah, yeah, and so. My response to them was, um, and I had several people say this to me about getting a religious minor, religious studies minor in undergrad too. Um, and my response was, if questions are going to kill my faith, I don't know how real that faith was to begin with. Mm -hmm. And if I can't handle a little liberal scrutiny, I don't know how real that faith is either. Um, and... I am, there are definitely some parts of more left-leaning theology that I don't like. And any right-leaning person that's listened to this um, podcast and heard us talk long enough will understand that we are not very far right theologically either in many ways. Um, in my context, I'm yeah. liberal in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you don't believe in an inerrancy, that uh, like... <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of messes some things up. <laughs> Um, or um, penal substitutionary atonement. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, JP. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, so this idea that it, it will kill your faith. And what I found is it didn't kill my faith. 
but it made it really difficult to have genuine, meaningful conversation with people who previously thought it would and probably now think it did. Because I'm someone who's very intentional, very purposeful, and very inquisitive about my faith. And not that people like that aren't, but spending this much time being intentional and coming to a lot of the conclusions that I've come to, right? I mean, I'm very critical of everything that my institution teaches me. I've thrown some of it out and I've adopted some of it. And, you know, that is what that is, but it's isolated me from a group of people that I love. And it's not necessarily because there's anything inherently wrong with those people that I love. And it's not that there's anything wrong with me, but it's just made Christian companionship very difficult, which is, which is sad. I was sitting in a Bible study, different Bible study than the one I was talking about earlier, the second of the, the two that I mentioned. And we were talking about something and it was like really decent discussion, you know, and we're going and people are saying this, that, and the other. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. That relates to this Hebrew word. And if you break the word down then this, that, and the other, and it was after I got done explaining, you know, the Hebrew word and how that kind of enriches the point that they were talking about, there was just like silence, dead silence. It was awkward. It was really awkward. Because I poured my heart into that explanation. And I don't know if they did not know how to respond or if no one cared or if I was, you know, well, actually, right, stopping my nosebleed and pushing my glasses up my nose like that guy. It's the reaction of like telling the joke and no one laughs when you thought yeah. it was funny. Yeah. And then you, it's the, you know, Peter's talked about this. It's the mental math you have to do of, okay, is, am I actually not funny or like, am I just not communicating well enough? Am I not funny? Am I not communicating well enough? Or am I now on the outside of this group? Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think I'm on the outside of the group, but for a, for a while it felt like that. And I've gotten now to the point where I, I don't say a lot. Yeah. And it's precisely to avoid that situation. I've also, when I do decide to say something, tried to adjust the way I say it mm-hmm. and the depth that I go. Because... Again, I don't know why. I, I don't think it's that they don't care. I genuinely think it's they don't know what to do with me. Yeah. And that's kind of weird too, right? But I remember we got in the car. Uh, my wife and I got in the car after that. And I just kind of word vomited to her how I felt about the situation to the point where I was almost crying because I was like I don't I don't fit in in normal Christian culture anymore and that hurts yeah right and I before before I didn't I already didn't fit in right 
because but you fit in enough but right? i fit in enough to be able to like if i say something it's not going to be awkward silence afterwards and now i just i don't know you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know and and so i don't know that's all i can say but it's gotten to the point where you know how you have different friends and like with different friends, you talk to them yeah. with, about different things. Like one's football, one's the latest movie you saw, one's theology, right? There are very few friends that I can talk with about theology anymore. Even the ones that I used to. Yeah. And with a lot of them, that's okay, because we have a lot more in common than just that. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's strange. Yeah. So if you want to keep reading, go for it. I'm going, I'm going to, I think this will be actually very, I'm curious to see where this goes and how this hits you. Okay. I'll, I'll, it was in the middle of the paragraph, so I'll finish the paragraph and then keep going. Well, we're always welcome. Our absence won't matter that much either. And when everyone can come, no one will be particularly missed. Usually there's food enough and people, and, and people enough willing to eat it. But often it seems that the food has lost the power to create community. And not seldom do we leave the party more aware of our loneliness than when we came. The language we use suggests anything but loneliness. Please come in. It is so good to see you. Let me introduce you to this very special friend of mine who will love to meet you. I've heard so much about you, and I can't say how pleased I am to see you now in person. What you are saying is most interesting. I wish more people could hear that. It was so great to talk to you and to have a chance to come visit you. I dearly hope you will meet again. Know that you are, you know that you are always welcome, and don't hesitate to bring a friend. Come back soon. It is a language that reveals the desire to be close and receptive, but that in our society sadly fails to heal the pains of our loneliness because the real pain is felt where we can hardly allow anyone to enter. The root of loneliness, the roots of loneliness are very deep and cannot be touched by optimistic advertisement, subtle love images or social togetherness. They find their food in the suspicion that there is no one who cares and offers love without conditions and no place where it can be vulnerable without being used. How true is that? Yeah. The many small rejections of every day, a sarcastic smile, a flippant remark, a brisk denial, or a bitter silence may all be quite innocent and hardly worth our attention if they did not consistently arouse our basic human fear of being left totally alone with darkness as our companion. Pause again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the things that I really like that he's drawing to um, drawing to the mind is this idea that we are all very lonely. Um, I would imagine we are all even more lonely now than people were in the back when he was writing this. Yeah, because COVID definitely have... revealed all that. By the way, yeah. Because we all and there's have... a definite argument to be made that uh, uh, more people have or will die 
because of precautions that were made during COVID than uh, well, COVID itself. There are already studies that are showing that, and we're not even two years removed from its inception. So that's great. Well, I guess we're about two years removed now, but um, the but one thing that he's really trying to push is we use a lot of different false medicines to try to fix the sickness of loneliness, right? The first one he brought was pornography. Um, and that one is, is how much more relevant is that now? So much more. The, um, and that's really what it is, right? Because I think a lot of people see it as this like disgusting impulse that, um, men just can't control themselves and all of that. But what I really genuinely think it is, is a lot of men are in romantic relationship and women. Um, a lot of people on the, I'll, I'll put yeah. it that way. A lot of people are in romantic relationships that are not fulfilling mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And I think maybe more often than not, the act, the problem isn't with the relationship, but it's with the person who's feeling lonely. Um, I think that there can definitely be something in them. I've been there, right? And we'll, we've had we'll this get conversation. To that. We'll get to that. Offline. Now one um, has some... Um, now one has some amazing things to say about that. Yeah. And I'll say I'm not exactly to the place where I feel like I can fully publicly disclose all of that, mainly for um, the privacy of others, all of my history with this. But... Um, I've been to a place where I felt deeply lonely and I thought that it was because other people weren't giving me what I needed when in reality, it was that I was fundamentally broken on the inside and needed to fix myself and my reliance upon other people was toxic. And it almost cost me a good bit of very well meaning, very meaningful and enriching relationships with well-meaning people. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so we, we try to fill it with things like pornography or sometimes gluttony is the pe people's answer um, you know i can't or... I, I i like i am so victim of this and it's something that because it's never discussed goes under the radar mm -hmm. and this is added to the list of things we're going to have episodes about I genuinely think that Lewis's letter and screw tape about temperance, about the false virtue of temperance is, is worth a whole two hours of discussion. Yeah. Um, Cause how he talks about gluttony temperance as gluttony is, is, is genius. But, yeah. but anyway, um, th that's kind of beside the point, although it, it made me think of that. My reactions to you know slights like now it's talking about slights throughout the day that don't go your way take yesterday for instance i work was busy work's been busy it will be busy for the next two months i just know that regardless i had because i work in retail and i had to like stay to help people and finish things up i was an hour late to getting off and that was frustrating, not because my boss or anyone's mean or they like 
forced me to stay, but just because of the nature of the situation in which I was like, I can't really leave. I'm in the middle of like three things. And like, I can't just drop the customers I'm working with. So, and anyone who works in retail or food service or anything like that understands those kinds of situations. Regardless, my first impulse on driving home was like, oh, I want to eat whatever I want tonight because I, today was rough. What? Yeah. Excuse me, sir. So like, yeah, there's a reason they call it comfort food. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> I wanted the mouth pleasure of like food that tastes good because I felt what I don't even know. Like, like the day slighted you. Exactly. And it wasn't even that specific people did anything mean to me. It was just that the day was rough. Well, everyone's yeah. day is rough at some level, right? So like, I'm nothing special, but this is something everyone has felt. And I particularly, uh, I have my particular vices. And so one of those is food. Like, it's the reason I'm overweight right now. You know, like part of that attitude of, oh, well, it's been tough or I've been sick or, you know, whatever's going to warp my, you know, discipline my self-control is so easy, especially when it comes to that. Cause I, you don't ever think about it. Yeah. Especially in America. Well, we worship gluttony. We do. We do. We, we, uh, we on one hand, like worship gluttony and like pornography, like physical self-transformation, which is utterly interesting. Yeah. But Yes, it definitely flies under the radar. And it's one of my particular vices that I'm more and more trying to be aware of. And, and just as an example, came up yesterday. Yeah. And I mean, it's so that one is particularly easy. I mean, I've caught myself, you know, doing that too. You know, it's just like, oh, we've had a rough day. Well, how about we, I don't know. Go get some get ice fast cream. food tonight or go get yeah. some ice cream. I or, literally, you know I drive, it's dangerous because I drive past a Chick-fil-A on the way, on the way home. Mm, All I have yeah. to do is turn to left and I'm in the parking lot yeah. and I was driving home and I was like, you know what? I really, you know, I could just go for a good fried chicken sandwich right now. And I was like, just but Luke, you just bought a bunch of groceries. Like you, you can't spend all that money. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what? I can't just, I, I literally had this conversation in my head. Like Luke, you can't just keep making the excuse of like work was tough today. So like I yeah. should reward myself with some bad food. Cause well, what kind of a reward is that actually, you know, or, or this yeah. girl rejected me or, you know, this relationship went south. And so I'm going to watch some porn and masturbate tonight because like, I want to not feel lonely and rejected. And I want someone who will accept me. And yeah, like the, well, these are real things. Any guy or girl like will relate to, especially in that relational realm. It's when things yeah. don't go well. It's when things are rough for the most part when those things feel the most appetizing because it is this fake acceptance that you get through, through the screen. Well, and yeah, ultimately it's, it's fake, it's artificial and it does a lot of destruction to um, 
the the way you relate to people in reality. Um, but in, in addition to that, and just going back to the broader concept, um, it's so easy to frame it as, oh, I'm going to reward myself with this meal, or I deserve this because it's been a rough day, right? And I find it even easier now um, to do that because I'm like with foods, particularly because I'm married, right? So like if I can get my wife to agree to it, to agree to then it, then you're in it, on the sin together. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, well, you know, we'll go get Chick-fil-A tonight because you had a rough day, you know? Um, and so I can kind of push that off not even intentionally onto her. Right. Yeah. Um, in this weird, like manipulate myself into it being okay. Kind of way. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> also it's just cause I'm kind of a sucker for her. Like if she yeah. bats yeah. her eyelashes the right way, I'm like, okay, we'll go get Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And, and it's cause I want it too. Right. Yep. But it's also because but they're the scapegoat in your yeah, head. They, for the they thing. become my scapegoat or, you know, she becomes my scapegoat or it's, um she really wants it and so like i want it too but i i don't know i'm also an older brother to brothers and sisters but i'm kind of a sucker for my sisters too right so it's i don't know i just have this sucker in me i guess um anyway um yeah it, it becomes really really easy to do um I'm sure you have more for us to uh, read. Yes, we use all this language to mask and to offer companionship when we won't actually let people in to where that companionship could be true. Well, and and do anything communally about our loneliness. Well, and I mean, that's what social media is, right? It's a way of... That's one of the reasons why I don't post much. I mean, and, and we have words for it now. Parasocial relationship. Yeah. Right? Like, there's, I mean, and the porn example has become even more strange because of something like OnlyFans. Because it's no longer some anonymous person that you're watching do something on the internet it's someone that is live that you can chat with that you can message that like messages back or responds when you put something in the chat and they say something back to whoever you are right so it's this whole other layer of you know and it's not just guys to girls but it seems to be that for the most part right um yeah any, I'll, I'll, I'll just make that point and let it stand, but it also just makes me chuckle and like feel sad when uh, people talk about like um, guys only want one thing and like, mm-hmm. I, sure, I guess, but there's also this whole parasocial interaction with girls on OnlyFans also proves that guys are just as hungry for some kind of emotional connection as women are. Well, and I was, I was going to say that um, I think that there's a broader cultural perception. There's a reason guys only want one thing, but it's also because we've been fed this lie. 
lie. That guys are the that yeah, and and that we the guys are the only ones that ourselves. want it. Let's say only ones that want it. We can't control ourselves, and and that to have emotions and want companionship is feminine, right? And to to be lonely or to not want it or to have self-control is not manly. That's a lie. That's a lie. And I think one of the most, and I've said this before, I'm pretty sure on the, on the podcast, but I think one of the most godly things in the world is self-control because love is the ideal and self-control is what allows you to act it out. You want to continue? Yeah. It is this most basic human loneliness that threatens us and is so hard to face. Too often we do everything possible to avoid the confrontation with the experience of being alone. And sometimes we're able to create the most ingenious devices to prevent ourselves from being reminded of this condition. Our culture has become most sophisticated in the avoidance of pain not only our physical pain, but our emotional and mental pain as well. We not only bury our dead as if they were still alive, but we also bury our pains as if they were not really there. We've become so used to the state of anesthesia that we panic when there is nothing or nobody left to distract us. We have no project to finish, no friend to visit, no book to read, no television to watch, or no record to play. And when we are left all alone by ourselves, we are brought so close to the revelation of our basic human aloneness and are so afraid of experiencing an all-pervasive sense of loneliness that we will do anything to get busy again and continue the game, which makes us believe that everything is fine after all. John Lennon says, feel your own pain, but how hard that is. We are in danger of becoming unhappy people, suffering from many unsatisfied cravings and tortured by desires and expectations that never can be fulfilled. Does not all creativity ask for a certain encounter with our loneliness? And does not the fear of this encounter severely limit our possible self-expression? When I have to write an article and face a white empty sheet of paper, I nearly have to tie myself to the chair to keep from continue, keep from consulting one more book before putting my own words on paper. When after a busy day, I'm alone and free, I have to fight the urge to make one more phone call and one more trip to the mailbox, one more visit to friends who entertain me for at least a few hours of the day. And when I think about the busy day, I sometimes wonder if the educational enterprise so filled with lectures, seminars, conferences, requirements to make up, to fulfill, to fulfill papers, to write and to read examinations, to undergo, to undergo and to go to has in fact not become one big distraction. Pause. When, Sorry. <clears throat> um, let, me, let me finish the paragraph. Okay. It's one more sentence. Once in a while, entertaining but mostly preventing me from facing my lonely self, which should be my first source of search and research. 
Um, I think that the so many symptoms in, in our culture, so many things that we do broadly are, um, are caused by loneliness. I mean, workaholics, I think, are very lonely people. And I think it's why what they do in order to self-medicate, right? If you can make yourself busy enough, you don't have to be alone with your own thoughts. You don't have to feel lonely. I think social media allows us to do this perfectly too, right? You're on an elevator, just a few seconds of blank time that you could spend thinking about something. First thing you do is fill it with a bunch of information. I uh, read somewhere recently that if you're ever you know, reading or working on a project and you're having trouble focusing, the worst thing you can do, and what we normally do, is pull our phones out, scroll through social media for a little bit, then put, like, as our break, in heavy air quotes, then put our phones away and go back to our project. And what Whoever this person was was saying is that what that doesn't, that, that isn't productive, because what that does is it doesn't allow our brains time to decompress from all of the information that's clouding our brains process it and then move on to something like move on to the project holistically and what i've really started to try and do is at least once every few days i drive to or from class not listening to music not listening to Jordan Peterson or Bema or, you know, political commentary of any kind, nothing. I turn it all off and I just drive in silence. And I think about what we talked about in class, what we're going to talk about on the podcast or whatever comes to mind. And I just literally let my mind go where it goes because I genuinely think one of the reasons why we are so anxious and depressed as a society is because we never are alone with our own thoughts. And when we are forced to be, it terrifies us. So I guess pick up where we left off. What you've just said. The superficial life to which this leads is vividly portrayed by Henry David Thoreau when he writes, when our life ceases to be inward and private, conversation degenerates into mere gossip. We rarely meet, we rarely meet a man who can tell us any news which he has not read in a newspaper or been told by his neighbor. And for the most part, the only difference between us and our fellows is that he has seen the newspaper or been out to tea, and we have not. In proportion, as our inward life fails, we go more constantly and desperately to the post office, where we check our messages. You may depend on it that the poor fellow, you may depend on it that the poor fellow who walks away with the greatest number of letters, proud of his extensive correspondence, has not heard from himself this long while. And here's the
here's the hiding two paragraphs. This is the new heading. And this is after this, I guess we'll, I'll stop for discussion and then we can maybe move on to something else if we would like to. The section is called the danger of, of the final solution. There's much mental suffering in our world, but some of it is suffering for the wrong reasons because it is born out of the false expectation that we are called to take each other's loneliness away. When our loneliness drives us away from ourselves into the arms of our companions in life, we are in fact driving ourselves into excruciating relationships, tiring friendships, and suffocating embraces. To wait for moments or places where no pain exists, no separation is felt, and where all human restlessness has turned into inner peace is waiting for a dream world. No friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will be able to put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. And by burdening others with these divine expectations of which we ourselves are often only partially aware, we might inhabit the expression of free friendship and love and evoke instead feelings of inadequacy and weakness. Friendship and love cannot develop in the form of an anxious clinging to each other. They ask for a gentle, fearless space in which we can move to and from each other. As long as our loneliness brings us together with the hope that together we will no longer be alone, we castigate each other with our unfulfilled and unrealistic desires of oneness and our tranquility in the uninterrupted experience of communion. It is sad to see how sometimes people suffering from loneliness, often deepened by the lack of affection in their intimate family circles, search for a final solution of their pain, for their pains and look at a new friend, a new lover, or a new community with messianic expectations. Although their mind knows about their self-deceit, the heart keeps saying, maybe this time I have found what I've knowingly or unknowingly been searching for. It is indeed amazing at first sight that men and women who've had such distressing relationships, distressing relationships with their parents, brothers, or sisters can throw themselves blindly into relationships with far-reaching consequences in the hope that from now on things will be totally different. But we might wonder if the many conflicts, quarrels, and the many accusations and reincriminations, the many moments of expressed and repressed anger and of confessed or unconfessed jealousies, which are so often part of these rushed into relationships, do not find their roots in the false claim that, that, the, ones, that the one has to take the other's loneliness away. This is the passage, right? This is the one that I was, what I said made you think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I moved to, um, moved off to college, I was um, on campus with, I don't know, 13 to 20,000 people 
not one of them cared if I lived or died, right? And it took me quite some time to make friends. It was basically the end of my first semester there before I had any real friends. <clears throat> um, and it was debilitating. And it was depressing. I think I actually got depressed. Um, and it got to the point where I did just what he was describing, suffocating hug, right? All of the people that were in my life that I was close to, I wanted them to fill that hole inside of me so bad that I was suffocating them. And I almost lost several relationships because of it. And I remember I woke up one morning and I just thought, what is wrong with me? And I came to the conclusion that I was depressed. And after a series of arguments, um, that I had with, at the time, my girlfriend and now my wife that I caused because of unconscious sabotaging behavior. She exasperatedly, frustratingly, and has since said she regrets saying this, but I don't regret it for a second. She said, why don't you just go to therapy? Uh, and I did. After two months, my therapist called me up and said, hey, and I, you know, I went and I was like, hey, um, you know, you, you go in, you sit down and they ask you a bunch of questions. And I very in well-articulated fashion expressed the issue. She was like, well, it sounds like you have a really good handle on what's wrong. And I was like, yeah, that's why I'm here is because I've been struggling with this and I'm sick and tired of it. And I don't know what's wrong. And we walked through it and it, it really just came down to the point that uh, I, I was lonely and isolated and I wasn't expressing myself, my, my feelings. I was sacrificially like putting my feelings down in order to help other people to the point where I wasn't able to help anyone else or be present for anyone else because my own emotions were debil debilitating me. All of this to say, go to therapy. Like if you need to do it, it's worth the time, the effort, the energy. And I'm a big believer. Um, you know, we have this stigma, especially as guys like, oh, going to therapy makes you weak. No, not fixing yourself makes you weak. Not being committed enough to being the best person you can be makes you weak. Empathetic. To so do something about it. Um, I, I cared enough about my relationships, those around me, the people that I love, that I was willing to at least attempt to fix the problems that I knew existed inside of me. It took me a long time to realize that they were there, but once I knew they were there, I was going to do anything in my power to fix them. And that's not to say that I'm anything special. I'm just, that was what happened. But yeah, this, this loneliness, it was debilitating. And 
had I not um, been able to recognize what was there, had I not had other people in my life show me what was there and direct me where I could go to start fixing that, that issue. I mean, it only took, I don't know, four or five sessions. My therapist calls me up on the phone one day. and was like, hey, I was looking over my notes. I don't think we need to meet again. I think you're good. I'm like, what? Never thought a therapist would ever say that. And she was right. I'm sure I have plenty of other personal issues, right? I'm sure there are plenty that I don't know about, but that, that particular issue, that smothering other people because I can't handle my own stuff, that's not a problem right now. And I don't intend to let it become one. And so, yeah, loneliness is toxic. And being in seminary and feeling isolated from Christian community is tough. But I'm glad that my lovely, beautiful, amazing wife is loving me through it and being my, um, at least being one companion I have that can carry me through it. I'm thankful for um, other friends that I have that I can talk to who are willing to put up with my seminariness. And I'm thankful that you have invited me here to have conversations like this um, and, and to genuinely be my friend, despite the fact that we haven't been in the same place geographically ever. Um, I would talk still, about a parasocial relationship. I know, I know. Um, but at the same time, I would consider you a very close friend and brother. Mm -hmm. Same. Just, just because of, of how it is. So yeah, I'll shut up now. There's, and I'm trying to learn this because at least in my previous romantic relationship, I felt as though, I felt as though I was being suffocated because in many ways, I was the only real confidant to the person I was dating. And that's a lot of pressure. And so when I first read that passage from the book, I, I wept because I knew that that exact thing, that need for a final solution was what had made it so hard for me to fix the things that I thought needed to be fixed. And Um, not, not to say that I didn't have my own issues. I had my own issues with being 
emotionally dishonest with myself about how I felt about things. I had my own issues of, as my dad put so well, being committed to the idea of being committed. And being being a false savior for someone else. I think I wanted to be that final solution. And maybe that's just as dangerous as looking for it. Perhaps more so. But afterwards, I found myself I found myself I found myself looking to doing similar things with my friends not not overtly but you know you hang out with them you spend time with you know people that you care about and needing that time to be meaningful, whatever that might mean, kind of plagued me for for a while. Um, you say uh, need to be needed? No, needing it to be meaningful. Needing it to be meaningful. Needing some conversation to happen where, you know, I feel like, oh gosh, that was time well spent. And I think in some sense, there's there's necessity for that. You know, you can't have every time that you spend with someone to just be all fun and games. But if it's never fun and games, then is it ever really fun? Uh, that's worth, worth thinking about. But I remember reading this and, and then I would think about times I would hang out with friends and then they would leave and I would feel like oh was that really you know worth my time hanging out with them because nothing you know special happened and then I thought well how selfish of me to the to use the metric of was it time well spent if I felt invigorated after because maybe the point, at least for this scenario and for this instance, is not that I feel better, but that maybe I help them. And maybe helping them is just watching something funny, playing a board game, or doing whatever. And while there are people in my life, even currently, that I would call good friends and best friends or, you know, friends that I do get invigorated by and do really appreciate their time. I've had to work very hard to keep myself from the, from the feeling of their presence being a necessity. And I think I just found, 
I think I just found something out about myself. I think I, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, having felt the way I felt in my previous relationship, in terms of current romantic pursuits, I have consistently been using the phrase of there's no pressure. And I haven't actually known what I meant by that phrase until right now. Because I've been trying to explain it in different ways, and it's never actually been explained right. I think what I ultimately mean, or what I want to mean by something like that, is I want to be able to enjoy your presence while it not being a necessity. Because if it is, well, then I think you've reached the level of final solution. Mm -hmm. And this is not to say that people don't become integral or important in our lives. As, uh, as Martin, who now and is very influenced by, will say that no man is an island. There is, because you, you know, and I know, the people in our lives where they are genuinely happy and engaged to see you. And there is no, let's say, pressure to perform where your performance or presence is not a necessity, but a gift. And having felt like, and I'm, I've been bad at figuring this out, but I'm trying to figure this out. Having had my particular issues and wounds in romantic relationships and in those relationships being and the and in those relationships having also had issues with parental acceptance i am very untrustworthy and scared of parental rejection of girls that I would date because I've had situations where that has happened more than once. And it is an awful feeling to feel reject, completely rejected by someone who you feel also doesn't know you and is misjudging you. But I think that I think that the thing that that I'm trying to articulate without being any kind of a without being any kind of a douchebag for for a lack of saying anything more explicit is that uh, I don't want to be in a relationship and in this case a specific romantic relationship where my presence to someone or someone's presence to me feels like it is a necessity. I'll, I guess I'll leave that where it is if you want to make any comments. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> or if it, or you say I'm wrong, I, I could very no, well be wrong. No, I, I think you're right. Um, I think for a while I had a need to be needed, mm -hmm. which is where that phrase came from earlier. Um, and um, I think that's manifested itself in several ways, um, <clears throat> at least in a pastoral capacity, right? It's one of the reasons I think originally I was drawn to ministry. Um, it's because the idea that I can help people makes me feel important. And that's toxic. And ultimately leads to pretty destructive tendencies. It's carried its way past the ministerial aspect of my life into the personal um, in regular friendships and romantic relationships and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but once I recognized, I put that label to it, right? Need to be needed. One thing that I started thinking about actively was, well, God doesn't need me. Does that make that relationship not fulfilling? Really? Okay. So if, if God doesn't need me and that's the most fulfilling relationship, what, what does it mean to base a relationship? What, what is the other foundation of a relationship? Why is it that God sent his son to die on a cross for me if he doesn't need me? Right. And in that, you can kind of see how my, my basic understanding of what a relationship was about was flawed. And it wasn't something that was conscious for quite a while. It was a subconscious thing. But in thinking about why would God go through all of these extensive steps for me, if ultimately he doesn't need me. Like, why, why then? And the answer I came to was that God wants me. And the conclusion that I've come to, and I could be wrong, but I think this is true, is it is far better to be wanted than it is to be needed. Because being wanted means that the relationship isn't built on necessity, right? If you need me in order to function well, that's toxic because you are dependent on me for survival and I'm dependent upon you for validation neither of those things are good but if you want me there right it's i mean it's the same thing as being picked last for a football team right you're out in the field playing football well you're here so someone kind of has to pick you right yeah but you're, it proves you're not wanted it's necessity but it proves you're not wanted you're needed you're needed because the numbers have to be even right yep Yep. We, hey, we need another person to play. 
you're not wanted. You weren't in the group until the group was an odd number. You're needed. Um, or what's worse is, okay, well, that team has Jim, and Jim is way better at football than the rest of us, so that team has lower numbers than we do, right? And you try to, like, calculate the value of people. And, I mean, there's a place for that, right? Um, but it illustrates my point. Be Having usefulness is good. Yeah. Right. But if that's the reason you're present, at least when it comes to personal relationships. Yeah. Look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like.